6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, an introduction. Well, we're going to have the opportunity now to explore one of the most beloved of all Paul's epistles, the epistle to the Philippians. And whenever we go into the Word of God, we always want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts for that word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to explore your Word. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and lives to what you have here for us, that each of us might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might become better stewards of the opportunities before us. We pray, Father, that you would help us understand this precious truths hidden here for our learning. As we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. The Epistle of the Philippians. And this is such an important epistle, we want to lay a little background. So we're going to spend this session on some, some review of Acts chapter 16 and why this Unique city is so important to Paul and has so colored his epistle. Philippi. Philippi is the proper, the proper pronunciation, I understand, but I'm afraid I can't resist Americanizing it, so we'll do the best we can. It was founded by the great Macedonian king whose name it bears, King Philip. It's on or near the site of the ancient wells uh, and fountains known as the Crenides, and uh, its natural advantages were considerable. It was in the neighborhood of gold and silver mines, even though they were exhausted in early times by the Phoenicians and the Thasians. And they passed successfully uh, uh, to the uh, powers of civilized Europe, to the Athenians, the Macedonians, the Romans, and of course, uh, during the Roman uh, occupation, we really uh, uh, read little of them. But the plain on which it was situated was remarkable for its fer uh, fertility. However, its real importance was strategic. Its geographical position commanding the great road between Europe and Asia. There's almost a continual mountain barrier uh, between the east and west, but there's a depression right here in this area which forms a gateway for a thoroughfare between the two continents, uh, the continents of Asia and Europe. And it was the, uh, this advantageous position that caused Philip of Macedon to fortify the site, and uh, that's what gives it its significance. In fact, it was at this very battlefield where the destinies of the Roman Empire were decided and which led the conqueror to plant a Roman colony on the scene of his triumph. Philippi was the scene of the decisive battle ending the Roman Republic in 42 B.C. Two years earlier, 44 B.C., Brutus and Cassius, uh, murderers of Julius Caesar, were defeated by the combined forces of Mark Antony and Octavian, who later became Emperor Augustus. And because of Philippi's assistance, 
Augustus granted Roman citizenship to these Philippians when he became emperor. Not only that, he founded at Philippi a Roman military colony with the label Colonia Augusta Julia Philippensis. And he conferred upon it the coveted privilege of italic right, that is, giving its inhabitants the same rights as if they lived in Italy. And we're going to explore this as we go through a review of Acts 16, which is so pivotal in Paul's life, and it'll explain his, relationship, his unique relationship to this group. It, of course, was the site of the first church in Europe, in Paul's first Philipp, uh, visit to Philippi. It's recorded with a minuteness that was, has few parallels in Luke's writings. Luke joined Paul just as he crossed over into Europe, and he was with him during his stay at Philippi. He seems to have remained there for some time after Paul's departure. And we notice very strangely in Acts 17, the first person plural is dropped at Philippi and then resumed at the same place after a lapse of about five or six years in Acts 20. And this all combines to make the visit to Philippi among the most striking and instructive passages in Luke's narrative. So it's for that reason we're going to explore Acts 16, to put this all in perspective. So starting in Acts 16, verse 5, it reads, As so were the churches established in faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Very strange situation. Paul wanted very badly to go north, but the Holy Spirit forbid him to do that. And uh, that caused him some consternation, but uh, it's interesting how he is guided uh, by a variety of things that we'll explore. The Roman province, we, uh, what we call Asia, we know today in modern terms, the region that we call Turkey. But it's also the region where the seven churches that, are, that Jesus uh, addressed in, Ro in the Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are all located in this area. Continuing verse 7, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. In other words, they were blocked. They couldn't go where they thought they were going to go. So towards the north, but it was blocked. Now, Bithynia is on the southeast shore of the Sea of Amora, which is the south shore of the Black Sea. As they, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And I want you to notice the third person, they, Luke is writing Acts, and he's writing here, it's a third person so far. It's going to shift here in a moment. Alexandria Troas is on the coast of Mesia. It's about 30 miles south of the, of the Dardanelles. Picking it up at verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he'd seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Notice that we, see Luke here shifts to first person, plural. And uh, obviously Luke uh, had an opportunity as he gets to know Paul, and they talked about this, that Luke was able to write with hindsight. So he's writing this later, reflecting back. But it's interesting at this point that Luke has joined them. And it's interesting, there are many scholars that suspect that Luke was actually the man that appears in this vision that causes Paul to uh, go to Europe. So instead of going north uh, to the area of Scythia and Russia and so forth, they went, were drawn by the Spirit, apparently, to go west to, into Europe. And uh, 
So, continuing at verse 11 of Acts 16. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia and the next day to Neapolis. And so they, when, when Paul and his gang crossed the Dardanelles, they actually changed the whole course of European history and uh, Western civilization. And uh, Samothracia is the highest elevation of the northern Aegean islands, midway between Troas and Philippi. And uh, Neapolis is simply the harbor of Philippi, about 10 miles inland. With the favorable winds, you can do it about two days, but later it took about five days. From thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. You know, it's interesting, you watch Paul, he was always uh, uh, focused his attention on strategic centers. Certainly Philippi is the gateway from, from Asia to Europe. Later on, we'll find that when he gets to Corinth and so forth, he, he always focuses on the strategic centers. Uh, he was uh, uh, very much clearly uh, uh, going for high leverage here. And he's doing this now, he's arriving here at about 20 years after the foundation of the church in Jerusalem. So just to give you a perspective here, time, we read uh, Acts so quickly, but in fact, time is passing. So we're at about Acts 16, we're about 20 years from the founding of the church in Jerusalem. And it continues, verse 13, On the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Now, this is going to turn out to be a story of two unusual and very different women. Now, notice here, there, there's no synagogue. Uh, synagogue required 10 men, or a minion. And uh, these are women, and uh, so this is just a prayer group. But it becomes the first church in Europe. And, uh, and a certain woman of that group, of course, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, this is uh, 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 what we today would call a sales rep. She, she represented merchants that sold a unique kind of purple from Thyatira. And uh, that uh, celebrated purple dye came from a, a particular shellfish, a murex. And we even find references to this sort of thing in Homer. Thyatira was known as a source of this coveted cloth and so on. And it's interesting that there, we found in, archaeologically inscriptions of a guild of dyer that have been found at Thyatira. So this all ties with what we know archaeologically. And uh, Thyatira is one of the cities Paul had to omit on his way to Troas. And of course, is the subject, the church there is a subject of one of the letters of our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Continuing, when she was baptized and her household, she besought us saying, if we have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So here we see her and her whole household. We're going to see that happen again when we get to the Philippian jailer. That's not just the person, but a whole group that gets added uh, to the, the church there. And it says that she constrained us. That word only occurs here and one other place, and that's by Luke in chapter 24 when he talks about the road to Emmaus. When Jesus, after his resurrection, joins them, they don't recognize him. And for seven miles, he gives them a Bible study. And when they finally got to where they were going, he was going to go on, and they constrained him to stay for dinner, which, of course, he does in that, that uh, very colorful episode there 
in Acts 24. But the word constrained occurs in these two places. So she constrained us. And that's probably what we need to learn how to do is to constrain Christ to stay with us and to have dinner with us. That's, uh, uh, I wonder what, they, you know, uh, uh, what that might include. Anyway, and it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So here is a gal that's a chattel, uh, owned, uh, in other words, a slave by these people, apparently has a gift of divination which they used and, and was a source of income to them. And so uh, this divination, uh, the word is Python in, in the Greek mythology. It's the name of a Pythian serpent or dragon that dwelt in the region of Pytho at the foot of Parnassus in Phrocis, which is said to have guarded the oracle at Delphi and been slain by Apollo. This is all the, just the Greek background here. The word, the origin, the word Putho is the name of the region where Delphi, the seat of the famous oracle, was located. And uh, so the, uh, the priestess at the famous temple at Delphi was called a Pythonus, and uh, the term Python became equivalent to a soothsaying demon. It was startling to us when we visited. I've always wanted to visit uh, the Delphi because it's so uh, frequently alluded to in, in uh, literature. And uh, I remember climbing up there to that, that area. And uh, as I watched the monuments and things along the trail as you go, you begin to realize I was going there because it was a colorful place to just be acquainted with in terms of its role in ancient history. And yet, as you begin to realize, that's a place where they gave offerings to demons. And I remember at the time, I actually, I actually became physically ill. I just uh, was stunned to realize... Uh, uh, the whole, the real impact of that history, very colorfully alluded to in literature, but to someone with a spiritual insight, a terrifying demonic uh, issue there. Uh, so anyway, this gal that we're talking about here that they meet was in effect Apollo's channel, what we call a channeler. And uh, so it's interesting how so many of these terms we associate with the new age, but there's really nothing new about the new age. It has deep roots here. Let's continue in Acts uh, uh, 16, starting at verse 17. The same, that is this, this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, demon-possessed gal, the same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Your first reaction is, wow, that's right on track. Uh, she's saying the truth, and she's uh, doing a constructive thing here, calling people's attention that that Paul and his gang were servants of the Most High God. That all sounds pretty good. We've got to be careful. The occult always is motivated by its own self-interest. Even truth is used to suck people in, and soon it gets mixed with error and accomplishes its evil purpose. So uh, uh, that's why it's, 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 very, very, it's a very, very dangerous thing that we're playing with here. You know, it's interesting, on each of the previous occasions where there is this kind of divination. We find them in both in Luke and in Mark. It's the gospel. Jesus commanded the acknowledging demon to silence. The fact that the demon might be speaking the truth, there's no, uh, no, no um, compensation there. Jesus commanded them to silence. Anyway, continuing here. This did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. 
And when our masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> we've, we, we've seen it many places it's recorded, and many people will testify to the fact that when someone has a gift of divination of some kind, when they become saved, they lose that. That, 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 uh, that uh, that's an occultic source, and it's dangerous. And so their masters now realize that their source of income is gone, and uh, so they, they uh, uh, seek to oppress them here. So they drew them into the marketplace under the rulers. See, if, if infiltration doesn't work, which is what she's trying to do, then direct oppression. So now there's a direct contention going on here. The fact there's outright violence starting to occur demonstrates that one of the enemy's strongholds uh, was being attacked. And uh, it's interesting that if, you, uh, uh, if you're in the Lord's business, you should expect to find oppression. And, and the more intense, the more uh, strategic your activities are, the more likely you're going to be under very, very serious oppression. So that's just the realities of it. Anyone that doesn't believe in Satan should try opposing him for a while. But moving on here to verse 20, and, and he, they brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. See, there again, they're appealing to the pride of their unique Roman relationships here. And we find this pride and privilege of uh, Roman citizenship will confront us at every turn in this narrative here in Acts and also will be echoed throughout um, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And uh, this very sentiment here stimulates the blind loyalty of people to, quote, by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Uh, that's, of course, just a ruse. And uh, I think uh, Ambrose Bierce uh, defines politics as the uh, pursuit of public principle for private gain. <laughs> and uh, so this, this is going to color, though, the, the, uh, the redress and and the forced apology that will occur uh, before the end of this chapter. Continuing here in verse 22, And the multitude rose up uh, together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And this is going to come back to haunt the magistrates because the magistrates don't realize he's dealing with Roman citizens in a, in a culture that, uh, of which <laughs> that's a big deal. We'll see here shortly. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And uh, we're talking here about adoration and worship, not prayer for delivering your servants and that sort of thing. And... Uh, the, the, the concert here that they gave that night was so successful it brought the house down. A little deliberate pun there, of course. It's interesting, the Greek implies that the other prisoners were attentively listening. They didn't just hear them, they were attentively listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. You need to understand how uh, the penal system worked in those days. When you were sentenced typically to, a, to be in prison, you had a uh, literally a certificate of debt that you would earn by dealing with your, 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 uh, 
imprisonment. And if you were imprisoned for five years and you were in there five years, it would be signed off, paid in full, and given back to you. And that was your protection of, uh, from uh, double jeopardy. That was the way it, things were done. If you'd serve, say, three years and then escape, the remaining two years fell on the jailer that let you out. So here he had all these prisoners that apparently he assumed had fled, and it was over. He was ready to take his own life. And uh, so you need to understand, that all gets played upon by Paul in his letter to the Colossians where he speaks of the, the, the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, speaking of our certificate of debt, which Jesus says on the cross. In, in John 19.30, he says, uh, it's, it's translated, um, it is finished. The word there in the Greek is tetelestai, and, and what that really is equivalent to saying is paid in full. Your certificate of debt and mine were paid in full on that cross 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and that's what Paul deals with. You don't really understand the Colossians passage and you have that background. And that's what's going on here with his prisoner, panicked that he was now going to be indentured with all the prisoners that were in there uh, having escaped. So Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light and he sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Obviously impressed by the miracle, but also having heard and realizing the distinctives that made these people different than the others. Sir, what must I do to be saved? What a question. That's a good question we all need to have the answers to. What do we have to do to be saved? Well, they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Now, this causes a lot of misunderstanding because that's not, a, that's not a doctrine. It's a prophecy when he says, and thy house, because indeed they all will accept Christ and they all become as a group part of the church in, in Philippi. And uh, so here is the first male convert in Europe, this jailer. Anyway, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and, and to all that were in his house, and he took, them the same, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Praise God. And when it was day, <laughs> I love this coming up here. When it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. <laughs> and Paul said unto them, They have beaten us, openly uncondemned, being Romans, and they have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, <laughs> verily. Let them come themselves and fetch us out. <laughs> I love the way Paul rubs their noses in this. They, they, they now, the magistrates, have a jurisdiction problem. Because they didn't realize these are Romans. And they're in a town that takes that sort of thing very seriously. Under Valerian law, no Roman could ever be bound. And this was considered to be an offense against the empire. The magistrates are in real big trouble. Under Posian law, that forbade any Roman to be flogged. A separate law, then they've got a whole list of laws they violated by treating these guys without proper due process. The magistrates are at substantial risk themselves. 
And that's why I, I just picture this. I could just see Paul <laughs> rubbing their nose in because he had a trump card. He was a Roman citizen, and they now were in serious trouble. Anyway, at verse 38, the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, <laughs> and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And my paraphrase would be, they say, oh, please, would you be so kind as to leave quietly? This aspect is going to be very important to us to remember when we turn from Luke's narrative here in Acts to Paul's letter to the Philippians. See, addressing a Roman colony from the Roman capital, writing as a citizen to citizens. Uh, Paul returns in his thinking to a political franchise mindset here as an apt symbol of the higher privilege of their heavenly calling, uh, to the political life as a suggestive metaphor to the duties of the Christian professor. If you're going to profess Christianity, he's, he, Paul sees a, he really draws upon a very natural uh, uh, emphasis here, comparing the, 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 uh, the, the um, mindset of the Philippian to, the, to their Roman citizenship. We have a citizenship much higher that carries with it responsibilities as well as privileges. And he's going to dwell on that uh, in his letter as we go. In chapter 1, in fact, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The parallel being you're conducting yourself as a Roman citizen in Rome. And uh, in chapter 3, he goes so far as our citizenship is in heaven, in contrast to our citizenship here with the prevailing empire and so forth. The parallel is very well drawn. Continuing in Acts 16, starting about verse 40. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So we now have seen three very different converts. You remember in Galatians, Paul says, neither Jew, nor G, uh, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, emphasizing the homogeneity there. Well, here we have a purple dealer, a sales rep, a proselytitis of Thyatira. We have a girl with a divining spirit, a demon-possessed gal. And we have this very Roman jailer. Well, the purple dealer and so forth is an Asian engaged in an important and very lucrative business devoted to the truths of the Old Testament. That was her background. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.